first reading this evening is from the Gospel of Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 19, which you can find on page 986 of the Church Bibles. Page 986. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? (coughs) Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them, male and female, And said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Turning back a few pages to page 961. Second reading is taken from Malachi. Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 17. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. 
So guard yourself in your spirit, and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence, as well as his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit, and do not break faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much. Would you turn to page 961? If you haven't got it in front of you, it would be really helpful. There may be one or two of you who are film buffs, and you'll know the classic film called Brief Encounter. It was made just before the end of the Second World War, starring Trevor John Howard and Celia Johnson. It's a story about a middle-aged, middle-class couple who meet by accident at a railway station and fall in love. And the film portrays their anguish as they tussle with their emotions for each other, conscious of their marriage vows to their respective spouses. And in the end, they break off their relationship, and the film closes with the Celia Johnson character back with her husband. It's a powerful film with huge emotional tensions as they battle with whether they will be faithful to their marriage vows or not. Today, there would be no question if a similar film were made. The couple would leave their marriages, and they'd immediately set up house together. The original film seems very old-fashioned in its assumptions. And it's interesting to contemplate how far our society has come. Well, we've now reached the third in our series from the Old Testament book of Malachi. We've called the series Straight Talking Truth, because through the prophet, God speaks to a people who have gone far from him, whose worship has become ritual only, whose lifestyle could not be further from the holiness that God requires. And as we've seen in the last two weeks, Malachi has much to say that is utterly relevant, no more so than in the topics that we address tonight. For Malachi, writing approximately 2,500 years ago, deals with just the sort of issues that film did, such as loyalty, and being faithful in marriage, and a striking reminder of how contemporary Scripture is. And God charges the people in three areas, their everyday relationships, their marriages, and divorce. And if you look at the back of the blue sheet, you'll see the headings, though I've changed the second one from worship to marriages. So let's look at their everyday relationships. Have a look at verse 10. Have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? God's people were bound together by the covenant or the agreement their forefathers made with him on Mount Sinai. So they had one father, one creator. But that special relationship meant very little in reality. They were still prepared to cheat and to do each other down. So in God's eyes, they had profaned the covenant, a very serious and solemn accusation. God's standards are very clear. The man of integrity or the woman of integrity is described in Psalm 15 as the one who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Now, children, those of you who work with the Sunday school know, uh, are very quick to point out our failures, in particular, if we make a promise and we don't keep it. But you promised, they said. On the one hand, keeping our promises may mean 
having accepted an invitation, sticking to that, even if you subsequently receive a more attractive offer. On the other hand, the hurting may be significant, possibly even financial. The cost of housing in London is very expensive. The market is overheated. If you're selling a house or a flat, it must be very tempting to accept a second and higher offer, even if you have already accepted a previous offer. But if you do accept the second offer, you are breaking faith. You're breaking faith with the person whose offer you accepted first. Gazumping should not be an option for the Christian. And the people hadn't just broken faith in everyday relationships. They'd broken faith in their marriages by marrying pagan women. Look at verse 11. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. They had begun to marry local people, local people who worshipped pagan gods. And so in God's eyes, they had desecrated the sanctuary. Again, very strong words. It wasn't that the marriages were objectionable on racial grounds. After all, Ruth appears in the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth was a Moabitess, and when she married Boaz, but she expressly decided to give up worshipping Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, for Israel's god. And she said this, Your people will be my people. Your god will be my god, is what she movingly declared to her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, the issue was that if a follower of God married someone who worshipped a different god or gods and who didn't give them up, then it was bound to damage the believer's faith and worship. Even the great King Solomon was not immune. Having served God faithfully and having been renowned for his wisdom, the scriptures record hauntingly that towards the end of his life, his wives turned his heart after other gods. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. And you can read further in 1 Kings 11. And the people in Malachi's day were doing exactly what Solomon had done, and its seriousness is seen by Malachi's prayer in verse 12, that the Lord might cut them off from his community. The Apostle Paul speaks in a similar vein in 2 Corinthians 6. He uses the word yoked. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? The picture here is of two animals. Two animals such as an ox and a donkey. And the two of them being linked together, entirely unsuited to one another. And if a believer and an unbeliever marry, it's highly likely to affect their exclusive relationship with God. The former Bishop of Chester, Michael Bourne, when commenting on this passage, wrote this. Often, when I find myself counseling a Christian and a non-Christian who want to get married, I find the non-Christian regards the spiritual aspect as of secondary importance. Yet the issue is far deeper 
when a person turns to Christ, their whole life and outlook are changed and they will go on being transformed. For the Christian, spiritual issues can never be secondary. And in my personal experience, when a Christian and a non-Christian marry, it's usually the Christian's faith which is undermined. It will gradually wane under the pressure of living closely with different values, different perspectives, and different priorities. It will highlight differences between the couple in the way, for example, that they spend their time and how they spend their money. Years ago, a Christian wife came to me in tears. She wanted to give her tithe, that's a tenth of the family income, and give it to God's work. But her husband was only interested in growing his collection of sports cars. Typical man. How very sad. How very tragic. And what a great deal they miss out on. The joy of praying together in good times and bad. The joy of coming to church each Sunday to worship God together. The joy of seeing children growing up to follow Jesus. The joy of using your home to give Christian hospitality to any who come. So if you're not yet married, this consideration should be at the top of your personal list. And for those of us who are married, it is worth remembering that many people have remained single because of their determination to obey God and marry only a Christian. And this is especially so for women, as there are many more Christian women than men in our country. It is a sacrifice we should honor with great respect and thank God for the service so many of our single friends have given to us personally and to us as a church family. Then through Malachi, God turns to the third area, which is divorce. Look at verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. I want to look at what God says here in Malachi and elsewhere and then apply it to our situation today. But before I do that, I'm conscious that this is a very sensitive subject for some either because you have personally experienced divorce in one way or another, perhaps even in your immediate family, as I have. Both my parents were divorced before they met each other. The context in Malachi's day was the ease with which a man could divorce his wife. It had become commonplace for men to throw over the wife they'd married when young to marry another. How contemporary is that? And God says he will no longer accept their offerings because in this area, too, they have broken faith, broken faith with the first wife they married as young men. There was no appreciation of the seriousness of breaking faith with the wife of their marriage covenant. They continued to worship God as if nothing was the matter until they realized that God was deaf to them and absent. Because as Malachi tells them in verse 16, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Faithful, lifelong marriage between a man and a woman is God's pattern. 
So when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees out to trick him, if divorce was lawful, he didn't immediately answer their questions, but directed them to God's original intention. Our first reading from Matthew 19, verse 4, sets this out. Would you turn to page 986? Page 986. Matthew 19, verse 4. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. But this was not enough for the Pharisees, so they asked why Moses commanded that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and authorized divorce. Jesus replied that Moses permitted divorce, not commanded it as they stated, and it was because your hearts were hard, but it was not that way from the beginning. And in verse 9, Jesus showed that divorce could be permitted on the ground of marital unfaithfulness. This translates the Greek word porneia, which was a generic word for sexual infidelity or marital unfaithfulness. And the reason why it was a ground for divorce is that it breaks the principle of two becoming one flesh, foundational to marriage. So, adultery has been recognized as a potentially lethal threat to a marriage. But please note, Jesus did not say an innocent spouse must divorce an unfaithful partner. He was indicating that remarriage after divorce does not amount to adultery if it is the innocent person, that is the one whose partner has been sexually unfaithful, who is the one who is getting married again. Another key passage in this whole area can be found in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul was writing in the context of a pagan society where either a husband or a wife had come to a living personal faith in Jesus Christ. If the unbeliever was prepared to live with the believer, the believer must not divorce him or her. But if the unbelieving spouse deserted the believing spouse, the believer was not bound. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15, <clears throat> but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So how can we summarize this teaching? I want to summarize it in three ways. First, God's intention, as proclaimed clearly from Genesis 1 and 2, is that marriage should be an exclusive, loving, and lifelong committed relationship between a man and a woman. Secondly, divorce is not always wrong or sinful because it is permitted, though not required, on the ground of sexual immorality or on the ground of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Third, taking the same line as John's, the late John Stott, I believe that in the situation where divorce is permitted, remarriage is also permissible. <coughs> First, so how does this apply to us now? First, let us honor marriage. Let us do all we can to make sure people are properly prepared for marriage. Let us pray for marriages, our own if we are married, those of our friends and family. Let us be prepared to work at our marriages and to seek to honor God through them. And if we hit a rocky patch, not to follow the world's way and simply throw them away. 
Second, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And to quote Kevin DeYoung, who's written a very helpful article on this, if we feel we have divorced lightly or wrongly, let us plead with God for forgiveness in earnest repentance and experience again God's wonderful, amazing free grace. And for that third, for those of us who are onlookers, let us not be guilty of judgmentalism. To quote Psalm 15, the person who may dwell in God's sanctuary is the one who has no slander on their tongue, who does their neighbor no wrong, and who casts no slur on their fellow human being. And finally, let us do as God says at the end of our Malachi passage. In fact, it's written in this passage twice, verse 16. So, guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. You and I, all of us, fall short of God's perfect standard. We're all exactly the same. We're all sinful people. And a church is a hospital full of spiritually sick people, hopefully getting better. But it's not a holiday home for the very healthy. We are called to guard our spiritual lives so we don't break faith in our walk with the Lord Jesus. To do what we can to be people of our word, even though it costs us, and to have a biblical attitude both to marriage and to divorce. There is a well-known old hymn, Rock of Ages, which speaks powerfully of God's grace in these words. They're slightly quaint and archaic, but the truth is clear. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. May God give each one of us the grace, his grace, to live as he would have us live, keeping faith, not breaking faith. Let us pray. We're here in the presence of the God of love and of grace, of mercy and forgiveness, and of strength and comfort. And if his word has touched you in some way, perhaps even painfully an old wound, draw close to his healing power. His living presence. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you're the God of all grace, undeserved, unearned love. We praise you for it. And in particular, when we break faith and let you down. Help us to keep faith in these days. In Jesus' name, amen.